don't take that quarter by quarter transactional um, attitude. Take the long-term relational attitude. Life is a marathon, not a sprint. There might be a series of sprints in between, but you need to be willing to invest yourself in those people because it will come back to serve you in, in the long run because people want to do business with honest brokers and they want to do business with people that um, that they like, know, like, and trust. Um, and you, but you can't just assume those things are going to happen. You have to make those investments. My wife is one of the best sales professionals I've ever known. And she will be the first one to tell you, you know, I don't even know much about technology. And she's a big technology seller. But I know how to find out how to solve your problems. And I will get the right people to answer those questions. Right? And she's always honest about it. From, and it's a, it's a refreshing approach. Right? And people get very disarmed when they actually see that in the authentic um, way in which she does that. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Sean Shepard. Sean is a repeat visitor to the show, and he's the managing partner at U Plus, a corporate and digital innovation specialist. Now, Sean has a long history of helping startups quickly scale through his GrowthX venture. Now he's turned his focus to helping established enterprises innovate, operate, and grow like startups. So we dig into the topic of whether it's possible for big companies to act entrepreneurially and what are the core competencies they need to develop in order to innovate and succeed in acting that way. We also talk about how selling fits into these core competencies and we dive into the topic of win rates, why they're often so low and really what they should be. So we get into all of that and much, much more. But before we get to Sean, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, let's jump into it. Sean, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Andy. It's always fun talking with a guy like you. Well, likewise. And and uh, so you're joining us from big sky country. Yes, Montana. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I just, do you watch like Yellowstone? I have seen it. Yes, it's a great <laughs> show. In fact, one of the actors. It makes me think on- about you. Yeah, yeah. One of the actors was on my plane the other day coming in. Um, Oh, really? Because <laughs> they're shooting right now. Um, Got it. Not too far from us. They typically shoot either in Missoula, Bozeman, or, or Darby, where the actual ranch is. And I'm just about 45 minutes north of Darby. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It is beautiful country up there. It is. I don't know if all the local Montanans love the show because it's, it's, uh, it's bringing more people here than they want. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, you know... How many people in the state of Montana? A million, and it's the fourth largest state. Yeah, area wise, the fourth largest state. Yeah, they could they could cram another ten million in there, and no one would ever notice the difference. Well, so. I completely agree with you. There's <laughs> you have to be careful when you ask for directions from a Montanan because when they say something's just down the road, it's about three hours. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was one of the first times one of the first times I was there decades ago when I was driving back to California from the Midwest to go back to school. Uh, first time I drove across Montana, uh, cause my sister was living in Billings at the time Ooh. and I looked up and I said, Oh no, I understand why they call it big sky country. Cause the horizon is long ways away. It's vast. It stays light till almost 10 o'clock at night this time of year. And it's just, it's just stunning. 
Um, and it, yeah. the, the sky is always changing. Um, yeah. So it's, no, it's, just gorgeous. Yeah. We're, we're trying to line up a, a, a gravel bike trip up there. Oh. We had one scheduled last year. It got canceled. So we're trying to, trying to get it back on the books, but yeah, not too far from Missoula actually. Yeah. The mountain, so. Well, those e-bikes are hot up here now too. I see, I see a lot of them around the ranch. Um, yeah, well, just because there's so I, much. I prefer I prefer the the old fashioned ones where I have to pedal myself and create my own energy. Well, sure, and it's just like the tennis versus pickleball thing. If, it, if it's easier, some people are going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, pickleball is turning this huge uh, battle down here in San Diego in terms of the pickleball crowd wanting to take over tennis courts they feel are underutilized and restripe them for for pickleball. So yes, uh, it's become a a culture war of sorts. So I've seen that we had the, the, the same thing. We turned our, we, we added those lines to our tennis courts and, and have the nets that get switched out, you know, and it, uh, yeah. people like it cause not many people up here are playing tennis. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have friends have just become fanatics about pickleball. So yeah. Me too. Um, yeah. All right. So every time you're on the show, it seems like you're on to something new. Seemingly. I mean, I think <laughs> last time you're on, Last time you were on, we talked about the idea you had, which was a while ago, but it seemed like you were reviving it for like a sales university. Yeah. Yeah. Professional now, that, sales college. Yeah. Yeah. Now, is that still in the mix anywhere or is that? It's always in the back of my head, Andy. Um, and I feel like um, I'll probably reconstitute that as my next venture. Um, but what I'm doing now is is a lot of fun and it's really interesting to be able to take you know, my 30 years of startup experience and startup sales experience and apply that to corporates who are trying to launch new businesses that are outside their core. Um, yeah. Well, so let's, let's see the progression though. So you, you were running growth X, which was sort of your own, uh, I wasn't necessarily an incubator, but well, it was a I mean, venture capital were... fund with an ex a product market fit accelerator focused right. on, you know, taking things from zero to one and finding product market fit, right? And I've always defined product market fit as a happy cohort of early customers who will tell the world they're better off with you than without you and why that you can then leverage to scale any particular business model with a use case and a, and a customer segment. Um, and that's where most ideas fail. Um, and so there needs to be a particular focus on it. What I've learned over the years is that it takes what I call stage relevant people, right? People with a certain set of attributes um, and experiences along with a framework, you know, in which you can operate and move agilely and quickly uh, mm. to, to do that, to find that truth. And it's not just product people and it's not just sales people. It's a, it's a blended sort of co-founding team of people that have, the attributes that I always look for when I hire, right? I want, I want gritty go-getters with a growth mindset who share my vision, understand my current reality, and are willing to run through walls without compromising their integrity to get to that vision. Unlike, let's say, the Uber leaks that we read this <laughs> this morning in the newspaper. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. Um, and and corporations don't have those people. Um, most of them, the entrepreneurs and the innovators that started those companies are dead or retired. Um, and 
And now they're being run by very smart <clears throat> subject matter experts, operators, um, who are really good at optimizing core things that already exist and that are known. Um, and then when they get a new idea, um, where they pay McKinsey by the slide to tell them what to do for the next five years, mm-hmm. uh, the, pow- the PowerPoint engineers, as I like to call them, right? Um, they have to look around for people to do it. And everybody's got a core comp- a responsibility already. So then they have to go find internal people, maybe some external people, and put them all together. If they even know how to do that, and if they even know what is required, which they often right. do. So, so this, yeah. Well, I was just gonna say, just by way of background, so you're you're describing your newer venture you're part of, U Plus, yeah, which is, as I sort of interpret it, is, yeah, it's a service you help, uh, you provide to help established enterprises come to market with innovation. That's right, and we do it through these stage relevant agile innovation teams that possess the attributes I just talked about, and they come from the startup world. If you haven't worked in a startup, you don't work for U Plus because you just don't get it. And, mm-hmm. and you won't understand it until you've gone through it. If you've been able to go, go through it, and not even always successfully, but that's your passion, that zero to one game, right? Um, you know, you're a good fit for us. Um, and what I've learned through that process is that we're really bridging the gap between the kinds of people that a corporation need to de-risk these ideas and make sure that they're successful. Um, and the fact that the pe- those people don't want to work for a corporation. <laughs> big corporations. Uh, yeah, big corporation. They, but they right. love working for us in our culture because we have a now post COVID, we, we had six offices around the world. We've actually closed them all. We've created, um, these, uh, you know, essentially a distributed environment where these project-based teams get together in a very purposeful way when they need to anywhere in the world to do this work. Um, Cause we've got people in nine countries and 24 nationalities. Um, and the people who lead these projects are what I call commercialization leaders, which is becoming an emerging role in corporate, especially in corporate innovation. Um, and many organizations, I spend a lot of my time now just educating corporates on the idea of this role and the importance of it and how it fills that gap. And well, it's, ex, well, explain what that role is. You said commercialization manager, director, whatever. Yeah. What, what would it be equivalent to? So that people sort of get a picture of it. It would be, and, oh, yeah, go ahead. And so, and maybe, maybe before you get to that, is, is start by talking about how you engage with, with companies yeah, how company, how you might connect with them, what they're looking to do, and and what you guys, I mean, you sort of explained it before, but a little more detail. Yeah, what a what a, an engagement might look like. Sure. Well, I mean, our 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 essentially our customer acquisition strategy is all centered around showing our work to the world and our worldview. Um, and and I, that all begins with identifying through the data why we exist. Um, and we exist because most innovations fail and they fail because they don't have people with the right mindset, skill set, experience, and a framework in which to find product market fit for an idea. 
Um, okay, for so a new we, idea within a big company. Hey, correct. we want to launch this new product. We think this is a you know an extension or an adjacency to one of the spaces we we currently serve. Correct. We won't go after it. Yeah. So typically, if you follow the you know the the Gartner thing, it's you know Horizon One, Horizon Two, Horizon Three. Horizon One is optimizing core business. So you're usually pretty good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they call that digital transformation or DX in, in terms of the space itself. Horizon two are the adjacencies, right? Existing products to new markets, new products to existing markets or new products mm-hmm. to, to new markets. And then horizon three is the disruptive long-term stuff. Like what are we going to do about getting to net zero for the carbon mm-hmm. as an example, right? Some of the long-term sustainability goals could be an example, right? right. Um, or things that would put us out of business if they existed. Um, think of Uber to yellow cap, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yes, so that's, that, those are the focus areas and these teams need to be comprised of those kinds of people. And so we co- sort of position ourselves as non-dilutive co-founders in, the, in these efforts. And U plus has been around for 14 years, had been doing this very successfully around the world, just not, hadn't done a lot in the, in the Americas because they, the founder was Eastern European, Central European. And the concept of a corporate venture builder, which is what these are often called, mm-hmm. uh, is quite mature in Europe, Middle East, Asia, because they don't have very robust startup ecosystems um, to rely on for corporate innovation. Because innovation in a big company is really broken into two pieces. There's inside out and there's outside in. Mm-hmm. Outside in means I, I have a problem. I think there's a startup out there that could solve it for me. So I go out and I scout and I find, I try and find a startup that I can either buy from, invest in, acquire, or partner with in some way. Right. Right. Um, and then there's inside out innovation, right? We know we can provide a digital version of our current physical experience, or we need connected services for our hardware or our equipment as an example. Um, but we don't have the people to do it. And what they typically do is they'll rely on their internal IT teams to try and build <laughs> these businesses. All right. Um, and they're not designed for that, right? They're designed to support businesses, not not um, not build them, right? right. And so um, they get stuck with that. Um, so the way we comprise these teams, back to your prior question about the commercialization lead function, is they are – tantamount to the sales or business co-founder of a startup, which is what I've been for 30 years, Mm -hmm. right? I've been the Mm non-tech founder. I've always had great tech partners, right? Right. So my job was to go out, as I jokingly probably said to you in the past, and be the overpaid translator between humans and engineers, um, solve real meaningful problems in a valuable way to get to that cohort of early happy customers. And most organizations don't have this person. They have traditional sales leaders, business leaders, operations folks, marketing people, et cetera, and might have customer relationships. But it's a different approach when you're taking something someplace new. Um, and so it requires a different skill set. And it's that person that has those attributes, you know, that I was talking about, right? They can embrace ambiguity. Um, they can cross-functionally communicate very well. They can strategically navigate an organization or customer ecosystem or even their own ecosystem to make that all possible. Um, 
and and they can translate the product and technology requirements uh, from the business requirements to really solve a meaningful problem and do it in a measurable way that demonstrates that this is a predictable, scalable, profitable business. And when you're team, you bring together teams, you contract, engage with a client to do this. So two points. One is what percentage of the time are you presenting ideas to them or are they, they have an idea and they're coming to you for help and executing? It's a mix and it depends on where we step in because there's two ways to think about how we engage. We do project-based work. I've got an idea. I want to take it to market or I've already started trying to, and I'm struggling. Mm -hmm. Right. Then, and then, by the way, there's always a wealth of ideas inside these organizations, right? There's a ton right. of them. Then the other way is more programmatically. Once we've demonstrated to them that this part, the way we work and the way we do things actually works, and now we have the support of all the key stakeholders, we do it programmatically, which is what I call the portfolio-based approach towards venture building. You curate a portfolio of ideas, you stack rank those based on a rubric, and then you start running them through the market validation and testing process to identify if proof of market exists and what people will use and what they're willing to pay for it and what's the channels for distribution and acquisition. And then we actually build the MVP mm -hmm. um, to within typically, especially if it's digital, we, we time box it hard, 90 days. Right. Because if you don't, you know when feature creep happens, the next thing you know, you're building right. something that people don't want and you're over-investing in it. So we do it the same way we do it in the startup world, right? This is very much Steve Blank, Eric Reese, lean approach right. towards getting an MVP into people's hands. And then within a few months from there, if we don't have it to monetization or at least user engagement that's leading to that, you know, it's not successful. Um, but uh, we typically will know at proof of market stage whether or not it's even worth doing. Um, and we will make those recommendations if, if we don't think there's a there there. And we will tell them to kill it or pivot based on what we learned from the market um, or move into another direction. But you're doing this, this work is taking this sort of you know, interesting models. You're doing this work with your people. I take it primarily, right? In a collaborative way, they will have typically yeah. these innovation organizations. If we're working with the innovation organization, if they even have like a mature one, they'll have a small core team. Right. And they need resources to fill in around that. Yeah, I was um, going to say, so who takes over when you're done? Well, it depends on what path they want to take. Right. There's typically three paths Two two are recommended. One is not. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure you can guess what the, what the one is not is, but I'll tell you. But yeah, you can either spin it out. Right. Um, and stand it up as a separate venture and even maybe take outside capital. Um, mm -hmm. You can. Um, and at that point, we're, we're, if we like it, me and my partner will even look at investing in it. Um, mm -hmm. And then you can continue to run it as a standalone business. It will help you find a core team that that's right at that stage to take it over and run it, or we'll continue to run it for you or with you. And then the third is, well, you roll it back into some other BU or some other party right. organization, which is the one that usually we don't recommend because they end up killing it. Right. Um, unintentionally, it dies of indigestion, right? Um, not starvation. Um, and so those are typically the paths. But we recommend and that we don't even have those conversations until we've gotten a product market um, because there's no point. 
you're just spinning your wheels and wasting time and money and resources um, pontificating about a future that you have mm -hmm. validated. So do you have a, a concrete example of how this works that you can share? Sure. Um, and it's, it's funny. This is how I actually came to U Plus to begin with. So at GrowthX, when I had my product market fit accelerator and I had all my investments, I was primarily spending my time helping those startups essentially follow this methodology I built mm -hmm. around product market fit and selling into enterprises. Because you know as well as I do, there's great product founders out there that can't sell their way out of a wet paper bag. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I had one of my portfolio companies <clears throat> working inside of Bridgestone's emergent technology group, you know, $32 billion tire and rubber maker, the largest right. one in the world. They've got 70% of the market. Really smart, awesome people. And they saw how my startup behaved, which I think this is kind of, you know, a germane to your book, right? You know, I, I, like you, have always tried to teach these modern professional behaviors about how you go, th go, go through the world, right? Right. And tell your right. story. Uh, and none of this, you know, negative stereotype salesy stuff, right? Right. And more time with fewer customers early going deeper to create real extrinsic and intrinsic value that makes it really hard for them to leave you, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of those was working with Bridgestone. And in the course of just advising and helping and being involved in these meetings, their head of innovations came to me out of nowhere and just said, God, you know, we have a bunch of internal startups we're trying to launch and we suck at it and we're not getting anywhere. Um, hmm. Would you be willing to take a look at these and, and, and give me some advice? So I started with that and then it was, well, would you be willing to just take this over for us and work with my team and reorganize it, make sure that this stuff happens. And at first I was like, well, I'm not really, you know, I've got my venture funds. I'm doing my thing. Right. I'm not really interested. And then they're like, well, you know, we'll pay you this much. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, but again, I don't want to get in trouble with Bridgestone. They're fabulous people, but a perfect example. They had spent extra, numerous millions of dollars on trying to develop an idea that you and I would look at, Andy, and go, you could have done that for 250 grand mm -hmm. in six months, and you did it for millions in three years. Right. Um, you're thinking about this all wrong. Right. You're going the traditional IT route and that's not working. Right. Right. So anyway, so their, their primary idea, they had a whole series of what they call big bets. Right. H2 and H3 stuff. And they had one that they'd been working on literally for three years. Couldn't get any traction with their existing customers um, and uh, or their existing sales force to even help them get to customers. So I changed the game for them and changed their entire approach. And inside of three months, we had early customers signed up and onboarding for validating what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And the CEO and the COO, literally in a meeting, the CEO says, and he's not, this one's now retired, so I can probably say the safety. You were able to get more done in, in three months than we were able to get done in three years. And then the COO said, bullshit, 10 years. But this idea has been floating around for 10 years, and it had not been implemented, right? And... It was so successful that at the major customer forum that later that year, the CEO got up on stage and said, the information coming off of our tires is now more valuable than the tires themselves. And we transformed the business and, and the way that they talk about the value they can create. And we took a commodity business and turned it into a value-based business. Because hmm. there was always this thing of 
margins and pressure and right. a race to zero with something that's black and round. Um, and now we've been able to launch an entire enterprise software business with a series, a whole slew of products that have been unlocked as a result of this. Um, Smart tires. That's what it's called IntelliTire, but yes, <laughs> that's essentially right. Um, and now there's a whole series of different businesses that have come off of that for consumer as well as for uh, for fleet, which is their B2B markets. Right. Um, with a unified data platform where all that stuff is shared um, and it sits outside the monster of the IT organization and it's got its own P&L. And we've got agile innovation teams in there every day doing different things, uh, working on multiple projects in a programmatic way. We're really proud of that. And that was all... That was all just um, so the back to how I got to U plus uh, right. was I was doing all the commercial work on this. And I had, to, I had to work with these internal IT teams that don't know how to rapidly iterate. This is right. a big gap that we have in the corporates. They don't have strong experience digital product management right. as a function. They have traditional product managers that don't iterate and move this in the lean fashion the way that we need them to when you're building a digital product or service. So uh, U-plus was in my building where my fund was in San Francisco. We had met a few times. And I finally came to them and said, hey, would you mind joining me on helping me do this? Because we need to get this out of the IT group. And I need a team that gets what we do in a similar way. Mm -hmm. So I was a customer of U-plus before I became a partner. Um, and we worked on that together for a while. And then I brought them another deal that just came to me through my network. And then they did that one. And founder and I built a good relationship. We have similar values, a similar worldview, want similar things. My funds were winding down, as you know, in the venture world, you, you know, yep. you're not raising, right? You're dying. So I wasn't going to raise another fund. Two of my partners were retiring. They were older. And so I said, all right, well, I think I want to go do this. So he gave me a chance to buy half the company, which I did. And we've grown 600% in the last two years. Um, and now we're it's a kind of a rocket ship and I think the timing is right. So it's just like anything, Andy. Yeah. I've moved on because there's a new opportunity and I see the window and I see the need in the market mm -hmm. and I have the right kind of experience. You know, yeah. I come from a serial tech sales founder who knows how to do this stuff and these corporates don't have that. And so we're just applying what we've learned for the startup world for 30 years to these corporations and creating an engagement model that makes it easy for them uh, to try us. And the track record is pretty strong. We've launched over 100 corporate ventures and have created over a billion dollars in market value for our publicly traded clients that will that, that share the numbers. Right. Um, we believe we've created a lot more value than that with the privates, but um, in addition. But it's been fun, and we think it's the new way. It's the new innovation operating model. Huh. And we're trying to educate the world on that. So how do you, how, how do you transition out of the engagement, though? I mean, what... Because the your client then has to commit, or maybe you never transition out, which is a great business model. Is is you know they have to learn how to staff differently. Yes, they do. Um, and so we're very honest. And again, back to the behaviors, right? We are mm -hmm. honest brokers. We're not going to compromise our integrity. We're going to tell you the truth all the time. We've seen this movie a hundred times. We know if you do these things. You have a good chance. We know if you don't, you don't. And we right. will tell that story. And if they don't agree with that worldview from the beginning, they're not a fit for us because it's not going to go well. Mm -hmm. We've seen it so many times. 
So we're very honest about all of that. Um, we're frankly at a point in our lives where we don't have to work, we don't want to. So we're very particular, right? Mm-hmm. We want to work with people who share our vision again and know the reality of their current situation. They've recognized that they don't have that and uh, they need it. And to be able to do it in a world, especially in large enterprises, where getting headcount internally is so difficult, um, but consulting budgets or agency budgets, if you will, um, are much easier to flex up and down. They like this model and they like this approach. Mm-hmm. But we tell them we're not culture transformation people. Right. That's not. I don't even. I've I've yet to see one. I've yet. I I don't know an after story from culture transformation that's successful. I've not heard one. Because it's just such a behemoth, right? Yep. It's like, how do you eat an elephant? You can't eat it all in one go. Well, but so isn't, we that, isn't that a big chunk of a lot of digital transformation projects? It seems like as there's embedded in that is some idea that by doing this digital transformation, we're going to change the culture, and that really becomes problematic. There is that, that is embedded in the idea, but like I said, I haven't seen those results. Yeah. Um, I, see, I see digital transformation results. I don't see cultural transformation results. Yeah, now, I what agree. I do see with us is we do what I call functional transformation, right? So our approach is um, we want to find the truth about where a product or service fits with a user or market, what to do about it. We want to create a functional learning organization out of the teams that are responsible for doing it. So we do it at the team level, which is quite possible. Um, we want to always have an idea, our idea, our, our eye on predictable, scalable, profitable revenue or impact if it's a social venture. Mm-hmm. And that process and that experience fundamentally transforms um, the, those teams and the way they work. And our clients will tell you that, right? Yeah. But we don't do it in an obvious way because it's more of a subversive approach towards changing behaviors. Um, and, and it works because they get the small wins and we show and share those small wins at every step along the journey mm-hmm. in a very transparent way using the framework so that they see it happening and then they know how to tell the story to their stakeholders. Right. So they can continue to get the resources and runway they need to be successful. And then they wake up one day and they're doing things differently. And now they have a strong story to tell the rest of the organization of um, how they did it. And if they choose to do something with it, great. But beyond that, for us, you know, we're startup people. We want to move fast. We want to move quickly. We want to move quietly. We want to move. We want to do it cheaply. We don't have time to do all that. We, 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 what we do have time to do is at the team level, transform the way they work um, based on our approach and our people. Yeah, no, it just sounds very interesting. I <laughs> could think of, yeah, any number of companies I've worked with, either worked with or as clients oh. that this would be a good solution for them. Yeah, and then back to the sales thing, right? Stage-relevant salespeople, um, as, a, as a concept, I think needs to get more attention. Um, yeah, because, but I mean, it's not like that's a new thought, really, right? I mean, I... No, I don't think it's a new thought. I just don't think it's prioritized, right? Or people, it's, it's, in, it's, it's top of mind when it comes to launching new ideas. So what do yeah. they do? They go yeah. hand it to their existing sales force, and you yeah. and I both know what happens then, right? It hurts current sales, it creates friction, and the new thing never gets off the ground. No, right. Um, and a lot of them just aren't generally aware of that concept. Yeah, they haven't done the missionary work that's required to 
Right. Yeah, especially yeah, in software. A, a zero to 50 guy or something like that. Exactly. Especially in software where you can easily bias yourself to thinking you have a whole and complete solution when you don't at this stage. Um, in hardware, you have product marketing teams and engineers that literally, if the thing doesn't work, you go back to the drawing board until it does. And you at, behave as that liaison between the customer. You say you're trying to get a design win, right? You've mm-hmm. got to work through that to get to a design win. Right. Um, and that's not a sales process. That's a solutioning process, right? And the design process. And that whole experience, to your point in the book, you know, what kind of experience are these people having with you? Are you aware of that? Mm-hmm. Creates that trust and credibility and that bond necessary for them to answer the question why right. they would buy from you, Andy, not Andy's company. And that's and but that's so clearly laid out when you have physical goods, because it's very obvious if they're solving the problem or not. It either works or it doesn't. Um, in software, you know, we tell a lot of stories, um, but then when it gets into people's hands, is it actually doing what it should be doing? Mm-hmm. Change the way they work and improve their performance because the end of the day, what is software designed to do? It's, it's designed to advance human performance. Right. And if you're not if, if you're not aware of that, and that's not and that's lost on you, I think you're you're uh, <clears throat> you're doing yourself and your and your and your objectives a, a disservice if well, that's not that's yeah. top of mind in your approach. Right. So I ask a question. So yeah digressing a bit here but um yeah i mean you spend a lot of time software world digital innovation world you know we're this more global question you know we've been on sort of a economic tear for 14 years everything's sort of up and to the right good chunk of workforce has never especially a sales perspective has never experienced anything down yeah um Start taking out your crystal ball. What big changes do you think you'll see happen on the way we do things currently as a result of that are permanent changes as a result of what seems to be a good, a good opportunity, a good chance the recession is going to come. In what context do you mean in, in terms of how we sell or do you mean? In yeah, we'll of, start there. How we sell. Well, I know what should happen, right? Like we had this conversation when COVID hit. Right. Uh, it wasn't a recession, but we had to change the way we worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people didn't believe we had the capacity to do that. Um, I, on the other hand, felt like we did because I've seen enough in my lifetime to know that people can and do change through force, whether you like mm-hmm. the force or not. Um, we were forced right. to change. Plus, there was a convergence element of we had all the infrastructure in place. All the tools were already there. Um, they just weren't being utilized in that manner because humans create connection. They want to be together, especially mm-hmm. on the creative side. And I believe that sellers are creatives yep. because we have to create solutions every day and we love to collaborate and we're good. We, we like sales because we like people. Mm-hmm. And I think the best of us and the best version of ourselves as sellers, which you talk about in the book and you and I've talked about in the past for years is trying to become the best version of yourself as a person. And if mm-hmm. you do that as a person, you become a better professional as a byproduct of it. And I think that's how humans should think about it. Like one of the thing, one of the reasons you and I, I think are so symbiotic in a lot of ways is we look outside of sales, out of the profession and out of the industries we work in, into other realms to try and take things that we think could help us be better sellers. Mm-hmm. 
right? Yep. Like you, you know, you cited the peak, uh, the peak end curve, right? Uh, in that podcast the other day, um, as an example, that doesn't come from the sales guy. Um, you know, I take things every day that I learn from neuroscience and human behavior, and you know, Robert Greene's laws of human nature. Mm-hmm. I try to apply those things, right? Um, or or Ryan Holiday's work around stoicism, stoicism yeah. which to me is one of the best things I think you can impart on a salesperson to get off the emotional roller coaster mm-hmm. of perceived rejection as opposed to learning. We've, we've had episodes um, about stoicism on the show. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've, we've talked in the past about curiosity, which is a big part of your book, which is huge for me, especially in messaging and how you approach, especially in zero to one, mm-hmm. because you need to be humble and you need to be a learner and you have to give someone a reason to want to help you because people will help you if you give them a very clear reason to. Right. Um, and that has to come through in your messaging, right? So just like COVID, um, the recommendations, I remember doing a podcast for somebody and they asked me to give them rec- So I wrote up like eight things that I thought would help people uh, survive the sales cycles of COVID. Um, I don't remember them all off the top of my head, but at the end of the day, it's pretty simple, right? Um, you, you need to get more focused, again, on fewer relationships um, where and open your mind to different possibilities about how you can solve problems and go back to the fundamentals of the exploration at the beginning to really identify what are the biggest challenges that my market has and how mm-hmm. can I solve them for them right now? What are the things that I can solve for? Because again, not everybody gets can wrap their head around this, Andy, because they don't think like you and I do, but we think about this again from that personal relationship perspective that you develop with a prospect or an account. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm your friend. I'm here to help you, right? The product is just a byproduct of that. This is really about what are you going through? Um, I want to understand what you're going through so that I can help you think through ways to solve for that. Right. Um, and going back to that focus, going back to the people you have the highest lead scores with, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. and the ones you have the longest relationships with, and just have those fundamental conversations where they can expose their vulnerabilities to you. That should be the focus because it's unbelievable what comes up from that. There's so many things going on in everybody's life and personally and professionally that we know nothing about unless we ask and we create a safe space where people actually believe we care. Well, that's the key um, right there is yes. demonstrating that you actually care and making that authentic connection as opposed to Showing up to pitch something. Exactly. And don't take that quarter by quarter transactional um, attitude. Take the long term relational mm-hmm. attitude. Life is a marathon, not a sprint. There might be a series of sprints in between, but you need to be willing to invest yourself in those people because it will come back to serve you in, in the long run. Yep. Because people want to do business with honest brokers, and they want to do business with people that um, that they like, know, like, and trust. Um, and you, but you can't just assume those things are going to happen. You have to make those investments. My wife is one of the best sales professionals I've ever known, and she will be the first one to tell you, you know, I don't even know much about technology, and she's a big technology seller. Mm-hmm. 
but I know how to find out how to solve your problems and I will get the right people right. to answer those questions. Exactly. Right? And she was always honest about it. Yep. From, and it's a, it's a refreshing approach, right? And people get very disarmed when they actually see that in the authentic um, way in which she does that. Yeah, you don't need the answers, you need the questions. Correct. Yes. So I think, um, I mean, do I have a crystal ball? No. Um, do I think we're in for a doozy? Yes. Um, I mean, we can talk about, you know, currency and interest rates. And <laughs> no. <laughs> macroeconomics all day if you want. But, but, um, but yeah, I mean, something's coming. Uh, and, um, and I don't know how long it'll be before um, we come out of that. But... The other thing I look for in these markets are resilient industries. Mm -hmm. um, what are the industries or sectors that you can sell your product or service to that are countercyclical to these downturns right. um, or, or resilient? Okay. So for example, you can sell the government all day in a downturn, mm -hmm. right? doesn't affect them. Especially defense, um, yes. Right. Food and ag, mm -hmm. right? Uh, physical needs, anything that meets the physical needs of humanity, energy, right? Um, so there's a lot of those industries out there. Defense is another good one, right? So what are the basic human needs that get that need to be addressed and served during a downturn that never change? Um, look at those markets. Look at those companies. Look at those. If, if they're in your book and you haven't paid much attention to them, maybe it's time for you to start paying attention to yep. them. Because they will still have budgets and needs. Yep. Um, I think the other thing that's going to happen is is you know just general automation is going to continue to um, allow companies to cut um, low skilled workforce um, in a way that that um, is going to dramatically change. I think the landscape of how these companies operate, especially in their technical their technology infrastructure. Um, we all know now that there are much cheaper ways if you want to be a cloud first business to do, to do business mm -hmm. and you're not yet. And I think you and I talked about this in the past, right? Change is slow. It's a lot slower than you think. Right. You know, if you remember, I figure, remember you telling me a story about a company in Illinois that was, didn't even have a CRM yep. yet. They yep. were a yep. multi-billion dollar company or something, yep. right? Um, that, that stuff all still exists. I see it everywhere. Right. Um, and it will continue to persist. Um, and that stuff's all going to get looked at closely. But what you have to do is align yourself with the mindset of the boardroom right now. What conversations are they having? What are they afraid of? What are they thinking about? Because they're having the same conversation you and I are having. Mm -hmm. Right? How do, we, how do we deal with what's coming? Right? What's your take on this? Um, and I get emails and text messages from CEOs of big companies all the time wanting to talk to me about this. Mm -hmm. you know, what are you seeing? What's your perspective? So they're, they're looking for help. Right. But they're looking for help, for help from subject matter experts, domain experts, thought leaders that, again, know, like, and trust. And they'll continue to invest in that. But you have to understand how the game is going to change. Um, and be ready, not just for that change, but to have an answer. Because it's sort of like, okay, the goalposts goal are getting moved. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you going to do about it? Right? Well, the game is changing. How are you going to um, 
make the changes necessary so that you can play under these new rules. Right. Well, which is sort of the point of that. I was going to say, it was the point of the question I sort of started with, I think, for a huge swath of people, as I said, have come into the workforce in the last 10 to 12 years. It's a question they've yeah. never had to ask themselves before. That's right. No, they've been, they have no idea how good they have yeah. it until they don't have it anymore, right? Yeah. But you and I have been through this. Numerous times, um, but yes. Yes. It's, an, it's the natural economic cycle of the world, right? It happens. Yeah, it's a new chapter for people, which is a new opportunity. I, I completely agree. Yeah. On the venture side, I was having a conversation with, with one this morning. You know, yes, um, VCs are tightening their belt, but they're still investing in really good deals. And we know how many good deals came out of 2012, mm -hmm. 2013, 2014, yep. 2011. Yep. Um, and that will happen again. Um, and it, it, and, and the, the, the primary driver for that, in some instances, will be the, 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 the coming economic conditions. And so... Our job is to be out in front with a cogent response to the things that our clients are most worried about at the highest levels and tell that story. And as individuals who are listening to this, as individual contributors, is you yeah. have to think about it almost in the same context. What's the value you you're going to be able do. to continue to create and provide to your customers? That's right. And, and not everybody's as fortunate or has had the background like I have. I, I was raised by a Silicon Valley CEO. So from the time I can remember, I watched how he thought, what he talked about every day, what his metrics were, where his head was. I got to see the meetings with, with his executive teams and, and the constant rigor of how they went about dealing with these problems that continually come up. And so I, I sort of, it was, I was fortunate enough to be conditioned to think like that at a very young age. So my first and only enterprise sales job for someone else, I became the top rep in 18 months as a 25 year old mm -hmm. because I knew how they think. I knew how to talk to them and I wasn't afraid to. Right. Um, and, and I didn't, you know, do 120 dials a day and four hours of talk time. I read quarterly reports. Yep. And researched what people in the C-suite were saying and then came at them with a cogent plan for why they should talk to me and how, how I might be able to help them. Um, and it worked. But it was, again, much higher conversion rates at the bottom of the funnel, but much smaller funnel at the top. Yeah. Sean, they'd never do it today. They'd never hire you. <laughs> no. 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 I've sold three companies and every time I giggle, I'm like – you guys would never have hired me. No, but you bought my, you bought my company. Yeah, uh, I love the irony of that. But that again, that's the sh that's that group think, right? That traditional sheep. It's always been done this way, so we're going to do it that way. Thinking. Yeah, which is pervasive in the valley. That's why I think it's it's well, sure, because it's driven by it's driven by Wall Street. Mm -hmm. It's driven by the investor, yep. right? It's it's investor driven thinking. That's shareholders, right? Whether whether you're a publicly traded company or you're a private one. Um, that's, that, that has, is beholden to outside investors. That's what you get. You, you don't get it as much. And I don't know if you've really investigated this, Andy, but it might be an interesting topic for down the road or something for you to look into, but how do benevolent dictators behave? And, and <laughs> when I, when I, and I say that, I mean, flippantly, like privately held companies right. with, you know, right. one or two founders, what's their culture like around this? Cause I can tell you that I am in a privately held company yep. that is, uh, that is a, you know, uh, 
an eight-figure annual business growing at a rapid rate with 150 people and two partners and a chief of staff, and we make all the decisions. And our culture is not like those cultures. Yeah. And I don't measure people the way that they measure them, and you don't either. Or you, and you certainly advocate for what I right. do. So I'm just curious what, you know, how many of those out there, you know, how do they do this, right? Do they just follow the Silicon Valley way? Do they follow the shareholder-driven mindset? Do they do, do they do they do it more from a personal or cultural perspective about their values? Do they give people the, the runway and the autonomy they need to do what you and I are suggesting? I'm curious that's, about that. I, I, I don't know if I know the answer. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to get somebody on the show to talk about that. It's a great yeah. idea. Well, I mean... I, I just, I'm curious because I just don't like, is, is that traditional conventional thinking that you and I have been railing against for so long um, pervasive in those environments as well? And I just don't know. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there and I'm going to go investigate that. (laughs) (laughs) You've given me something new to think about. I like that. Okay. Well, you know, to the individual contributors out there, your job is not to give people more work. It's to give them less. And I, I apologize. It just gave Andy more uh, work. No, no this, this, this is my job. <laughs> That's something to think about. This is good stuff. So, all right, Sean, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? They can always go hit me up on LinkedIn, reference this. I'm happy to connect. I'm on Twitter at Sean A. Shepard. Um, and if they want to talk to me more about the particular work I do, then they can email me, Sean, at you.plus letter U dot P-O-U-S and Sean S-E-A-N. All right. Perfect. Sean, as always, a pleasure. You too, Andy. And congrats on the success of the hey, new book. We it, talked about it for a long time. It's, a, it, it's, it's about time you did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was as over, if it was that easy. It was, it was overdue. That's true. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think it's timeless. I think it's a timeless uh, book. And uh, well, thank you. I really do. And I think there are very few timeless sales books. Well, thank you. I appreciate Great that. Great job. Um, Sean, look forward to doing it again. Yes, as always. Thanks, bud. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guest, Sean Shepard, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And again, Thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.